This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am joined by L. Grover Fricks for another Hebrew lesson on joy and an exploration into the account of Lot's wife. Woohoo! So joy. Joy. That sounds fun. Yeah. You know, we're in Advent now, um, and so it's appropriate. Um, but I want to ask you... Mr. Brent Billings, if you've heard the that truism, what's the most frequent command in the Bible? Uh, I don't think I have actually. Oh man! Okay, but well, I'm I'm guessing that it's going to be to to have joy or whatever. Well, that's the spoiler is in the title for you there, but uh, most of our listeners would probably say do not fear, um, which I am perfectly happy, you know, of all the things that we're saying is the most frequent command in the Bible. Do not fear is a good one, right? Especially if we um, apply it to God's character and everything. But the word for fear, not even counting the number of times it says do not fear, only comes up 300 times in the text. Would you like to guess how often the concept of joy comes up in the text? Oh, it's got to be ridiculous. It's got to be like a thousand times. That is correct. It is 921 times. Woo. Woo. Okay. All right. Yeah. Which um, in English, um, this is one of the places that it's the Wild West completely. Translators uh, in our language, we just pretty much have joy and we have happiness, um, but we don't like to use happiness for some reason. We tend to have this like Christian midrash that God, God wants you to be joyful, but not happy, which like, where, where are we getting that from? Is there a text that I've missed that says that? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, I think, I don't know. The way I've always understood that is that happiness is like based on your circumstances, but you're supposed to have this underlying thing that is beyond your circumstances. Yeah, which is fine. Um, I'm going to give us the pictures behind all these different words, but see if that holds up after we've seen some of these pictures. So if you see joy, gladness, rejoicing, exultation, um, all of those words, including when it's a verb, including when it's a noun, are coming back to this diverse collection, this family of words in Hebrew. So the only way to know is to check in your interlinear Bible, which when it is. Um, and yeah, start start paying attention. So our first word, we're going to go through six today. In, in the presentation. So open the presentation now if you haven't already. Oh, if you would like to. Uh, or, you know, if you're driving, don't. Um, but our first word is sameach. Um, and this is probably, if you speak any modern Hebrew, the most common one that you think of because we use it for holidays all the time. Um, and it is the straightforward idea that you would think of being cheerful, rejoicing. Um, that one doesn't have a more specific picture behind it. So it's kind of the base word. It's first mention is in Exodus 4, and it's um, when God is so lovingly, by the way, comforting Moshe and trying to encourage him to go on this mission that he's um, setting out for him. And he says, look, Aharon, your brother, is going to come out to meet you with joy in his heart. Um, so if you're looking for ways to distinguish between them, I'd put a little bit of a community factor in um, Samayach about whether it's um, a holiday so people are together or this picture of joy being in Aharon's heart because he's 
getting to meet his brother. Yeah, that's number one. This okay, so a couple of things. Yes. I'm I'm surprised that the first mention of this baseline word for this concept that appears three times more than the next most frequent concept uh, is first mentioned in Exodus. Mm-hmm. That seems crazy. It is pretty crazy. So that's just like a comment. But my question is, what sort of like what sort of holidays would they have at this point? Because nothing has been established in the rest of oh. Torah at this point. So like what, what sorts of things would they be celebrating? Or is it just like the fact that they're back together after being away for a time or something? Yeah. I meant, thanks for the clarification. I meant in modern Hebrew, if you're saying happy holidays to someone, no matter what holiday it is, you say, Chag Samayach. Um, okay. You did, you did mention the modern aspect of that, but I, I thought you also meant that for them. Yeah, sometimes there's plenty. These are used so often, right? 921 times that even though I'm going to call attention to certain ones, um, there are so many other uses. So you can find whatever. Go on a concordance journey. BLB should be paying me at this point, but it's it's the <laughs> it's the best. Go <laughs> go eat your heart out on Sameach. Okay. Or any of these words. All right. Our next one, moving along. I've got Chedva. Chedva is a uh, super common name for women in Hebrew. So um, if you're looking for a nice baby name, there you go. Chedva. Um, this one is interesting. It's coming from the Akkadian word Hidutu. And so we only see it in the later portion of um, the text, which if you take um, my beginning biblical Hebrew class, you'll be able to understand why that is and what I'm talking about. But um, we see it in these Akkadian writings, Chedva, um, in reference to the god Enlil, who is the third figure in the Mesopotamian trinity. Um, so they talk about the joy of Enlil and the day of rejoicing um, on his festival, which is the eighth day, by the way, which I find fascinating. Um, but the reference that I have here is Nehemiah 8, um, which has the joy of the Lord is your strength, um, which is fun because for the original listeners, they would have been expecting Chedva and Lil is your, you know, strength. And so the author is switching that out for their context. Question, Brent? Uh, well, I just feel like we could do an entire episode on what you just said in the last 35 <laughs> seconds. So probably I don't, I don't know if I have too many questions, but wow. Okay, great. Okay, excellent. Shush is the third one that's pronounced shush, not shush, if you're looking at it. Shush. Uh, that is a little bit disappointing. I was really hoping for a shush that's as great. I was putting this presentation together. <laughs> Darn. Well, I'm, we'll find something else that you like. Um, the word for why is llama. If that in- entertains you, you can yell llama at this guy. Um, that's a freebie. <laughs> I do like that. Yeah, that is great. There you go. Um, okay, so the picture for this one is to leap around for joy like a horse, which is great. Um, you can probably find on YouTube if you're not familiar with animals or if you have a dog or a cat. Millennials love to say that their pets get the zoomies. This is kind of the idea. It's a animal that is bouncing around. They're not jumping up and down like a human does, but leaping around for joy. And what's so beautiful is its first mention is Deuteronomy 28, where it says that God will shush over us to do good to us. 
So mm. picture of God jumping around, leaping around like a horse. I love so much. Takes away this very sterile idea of God and how distant and emotionally like blank he is. Um, but yeah, he describes himself. Shushing. Is, is this where we get the idea of God dancing over us? Oh, that, that's coming up. That's coming up. That's the next that's coming one, up. Brent. Okay. Great no, transition. Okay. Sorry. Great transition. Number four is, oh, well, you have a different order than I do. Um, I'm going to go on with my order and you can change your presentation. The next one is Gil. And Gil uh, means to spin for joy. Um and it is also used in the context of like a circle dance, uh, which is called a hora in uh, modern Judaism. And so we have texts about like the planets, Gil spinning for joy when um, you're reading the Psalms, really beautiful things in there. But uh, Zephaniah 3 is one of those passages. There's two different words that God is using for joy in there, and you can go discover that on your own. But yes, God not only leaps around like a horse for joy, he also spins for joy again about us in that particular text. So the picture that I get of this is like the way really little kids dance is they're just spinning around one. in circles basically. Is that, is that the right image? Uh, that is a great image. Absolutely. I'd put another one, you know, if you've seen like Fiddler on the Roof, um, the lead male character, you know, is doing some circle, some circle dancing mm. on his own. Um, I have actually seen that now for the first time as of a few months ago. So that is, that's good. So proud. So proud of you. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> personal growth. <laughs> if that's all you have to do in the realm of personal growth, that's a success. So that's Gil, which is also um, a more common name, usually Gila for a woman. Okay. Hmm. Number five, we'll do Alas. Alas, uh, similar to shush, means to jump for joy. So, you know, if you go to a concert or a wedding and people are jumping around, that is completely biblical. Um, all of these things are completely biblical ways for us to worship God, by the way, um, including alas, jumping for joy. Psalm 96 is the reference I have there. That can be a little fun exercise because there are four different words for joy just in the end, a couple of verses of Psalm 96. And you can see the translators being like, oh no. Um, <laughs> and rejoice, be glad, rejoice, be glad in rejoicing. And sometimes they throw something like triumph or exult in there, but you know, who really knows what exult means? Not very many people. This word feels the most celebratory to me of all of them. Maybe that says more about you than the words. Maybe Brent celebrates okay. by jumping around. Yeah. I just think like the, what would motivate me to like jump up and like, I mean, the next word we're going to get to is about shouting, but, mm -hmm. I, but like, this is like, this is jumping. Like you're putting every bit of energy you have into it. So I don't know. Right. Yeah. We have, uh, in Isaiah, lots of things about like the blind shall see and the deaf shall hear and the lame shall either shush or alas often. Mm. Yep. Love it. Yeah. Okay. And the last one is ranen, not ramen. <laughs> ranen. Um, and this is an onomatopoeia, which it's not a little, you know, Hebrew lesson if we don't have an onomatopoeia. Um, but it is a shout for joy, which like you said, we tend to think of like, woohoo. Um, 
pull back from the mic there. You're welcome. Um, but it's an onomatopoeia. So for them, it would sound like which is the idea only like higher pitched, like, um, yeah, I'm not going to do it, but you can imagine like people on horses <laughs> on the movies as they're like war crying as they run in. Which, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Which frequently, um, is the context that's used in war a lot. Um, but the onomatopoeia specifically is for the sound that a flagpole makes in the wind. So like if it's stuck in something, you know, and it's bouncing back and forth around, na, 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 na. Uh, um, yeah. but the first place we see that, uh, is Leviticus nine, Vayikra, chapter nine. And it's in a worship context. It's talking about, um, God showing up and the people fall on their faces and running. Um, and I love this, um, all of these words, not just running specifically, um, because we, some of us have been raised to have very um, disdainful opinion of people who express joy, whether that's in the context of worship or out of the context of worship. And that's not everybody, but some of us, you know, we're told that worship should look like sitting in your pew or standing, you know, and being very, very solemn. And that's not the biblical picture at all. Um, some of us were told that being emotionless is to be rational or that emotions were weak. But if that was the case, why does God tell us 921 times to have joy? Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, some of us are avoiding displaying emotion because that would mean being vulnerable. Um, there's a lot of different things going on there. But when you realize what a rich tapestry joy is and all the times that God is inviting us to it over and over and over and over and over and all these different expressions. Um, it kind of makes us take a little reckoning of what is my own cultural predilection, cultural preference, and am I gluing that onto God as his character and legislating other people in the way that they should be worshiping um, and thinking that they're just a little bit silly and having too much fun? Um and again, maybe that's not you, not you, Brent, um, but maybe not the listener, but just something to keep in mind um, that we can probably experiment with other ways to express joy and um, stop worrying about, you know, making a fool of ourselves so much. And I know you uh, called out the first word, uh, Samayach. Yeah, um, Samayach. Um, as being specifically community oriented. But I, I feel like this concept of Ranan is... Um, maybe not necessarily community oriented, but it's like when you have a whole group of people, as I would get the picture of in, in like the corporate worship setting right? or, or like in a, you know, in a battlefield where you have hundreds or thousands of soldiers all doing this together, mm -hmm. it, it's going to take on a whole different sort of feeling than it would right. individually. Right. Yes. If you're uncomfortable with this, you can do one of two things. Shut yourself in your room where no one's going to hear you and, you know, try out some different expressions or go find a church community and visit for a week where this is the culture, because there are plenty of those cultures um, within different branches of Protestantism. Um, and it is super normative there. I've been in a a Jesus 
bunny hop line before. I walked into like a worship night in Jerusalem. I had no idea what was going on. Never been there before. And there's a string of people like, dun, 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 Jesus, dun, 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 Jesus. I'm like, wow, what's happening? But probably more biblical than the way that I grew up. Um, you know, yeah, right. no smiling or else people might think you're worshiping the emotion or whatever instead of God, which if God was worried about that, why would he command us to be joyful? Mm. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, I, I will say, um, we have, um, perhaps some, so all, all the time people are like, okay, I want to, I want to learn Hebrew more. I want to, um, I want to hear more of what L has to say. And it's like, well, L just keeps creating resources and cannot stop because apparently the, the thirst for, um, for learning Hebrew cannot be quenched yet. So, we have another thing to talk about, Elle. So, so share what your next project is. Yeah, yeah, I have two things. Um, I so if you didn't get to take biblical uh, beginning biblical Hebrew when I offered it starting in this fall, but you're like, oh man, I wanted to get on in on that. I don't miss registration. We're starting another class um, in January, starting from the beginning, um, and then also. If you are not sure about whether beginning is right for you or you just finished our beginning class, um, I'm also starting an intermediate class. So still going on. It's been really fun. We'd love to have you no matter what your learning level is. Um, a whole bunch of different ages and backgrounds of people showed up. Um, and you can always take private lessons, too, if your schedule is more um, particular or you just want to learn in private because uh, small group learning isn't your thing. But so that's happening in January, but also kicking off in January as we're looking for new patterns. Some people are making resolutions, trying to set, uh, you know, helpful structures, godly structures in our lives. You might be interested in um, a podcast that me and my husband are starting. It's called The Text in Us or Text in Us rather. And all it is, it's going to be pretty short coming out a couple times a week, um, probably just two, but it is just me reading my translation um, of a chapter of the text. We're going to start in Genesis and go through. Um, but taking all of these different words, so I don't just translate joy, I translate it shout for joy or jump for joy or leap for joy like a horse. Um, so I'll read that chapter of translation. And then my husband and I'll talk for like 15 minutes just on translator's notes. It's not, it's not going to be midrash, probably really no promises there, but probably not midrash. <laughs> yeah. It's not a deep dive into Talmud or history or anything. It's just going to be like, oh, when we look at it this way, or we're able to see that the Hebrew actually says this and not this, that really calls attention to this instead. Um, so short, something that you can potentially work into your daily routine without being like, oh man, that's that's a big, a deep, deep learning of, I don't know, Syrian culture, whatever. Um, but our, our values there, or we want to soak up every ounce of meaning in the text. So I really take the time in my translation to squeeze all of these beautiful pictures out. Um, we also trust the intelligence of readers to speculate for themselves rather than being given all of the answers. Because so often translators, if there's any ambiguity, they take it right out. So a pronoun might be he, and they'll stick in God, or they'll stick in Moses instead, because they 
don't want you to wonder, oh, who's being talked spoken about here, which rips out our chance to wrestle with the text, which is a bummer. So we leave all that stuff in there. Um, we place a high value on the original aesthetic beauty of the text, and we endeavor to restore it as much as possible. And then we seek to illuminate the culturally informed images within the words that the authors intended readers to enjoy. So if that sounds at all interesting to you, um, look for us January, the first week, um, text in us. We'd love to have you. And that'll be wherever, you know, you regularly find podcasts. Yeah. So this episode will be out before the podcast is out. But once, if you're listening to this episode later, I will have it in the show notes. So, oh, great. Um, and also where can people sign up for your Hebrew classes? That would be on my website at lgroverfricks.com. Perfect. Okay. But we've got more stuff to do. Plugs over. Lot's untitled wife. Indeed. Apparently. Sort of. Maybe, maybe not. She gets a name. Uh, We're going to name her. I believe that the Bible didn't name her on purpose. Um, So we'll talk about it. But but yes, her name, spoilers, is Edith, from which we get Edith. Edith. I-D-I-T. Edith. Okay. But Lot's wife, can you recap in just a couple sentences? Um, not a whole sermon, Brent. I know you had one prepared, but <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, just a couple sentences on what's the context in Genesis 19, what's going on, um, what happens to Lot's wife. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. And as I was looking into this a little bit, I discovered that there is a volcanic deserted island in, oh boy. in Japan named Lot's wife. Oh, okay. Okay. That's <laughs> it's much just better. A, it's just this pillar of rock sticking up out of the ocean. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Okay. Uh, thank you, British people, for yeah doing that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, Lot's wife. She, uh, you know, they're they're escaping the destruction, and and she looks back uh, apparently longingly or something in a way that she says, well, I still want to be there even though it's being destroyed or something. And so she turns into a pillar of salt. Yeah. So fascinating listening to um, you. I did a big, big paper on this, which I'll be distilling down, but so much of that is commentary that's not actually in there. Um, Yeah. But we memorize (laughs) it with all of that commentary because we're trying to make sense of this difficult story, right? So these angels show up, um, they say the city's going to be destroyed, and it's after this big thing with Avraham and God, where Avraham's like, "Hey, if there's this many people, will you not destroy the city?" And they go back and forth and back and forth. Um, and we'll we'll circle back to that in a minute. But yeah, that's what's going on. So the reason that I want to talk about this story, um, we're going to look at its reception history. Reception history is an academic word that means like the history of thought about a story in the text or about a character in the text, that how it has been received by different communities. Um, so we're going to say reception history of Edith or of Lot's wife question yeah there well not a question but there's surprisingly little about bloat's wife in the text as far as like yeah what i what i like my my you know back of the mind like understanding of the story like there's just so little about what she's actually doing 
Right. And all of this, there's all this story built up around it. Right. Which I mean is because we're doing our best to try to figure out why she got punished so hardcore for something. Um, <laughs> right. right. Getting... Because w- when they initially tell Lote to take his family out, it says that Lote hesitated. And mm-hmm. that seems like the sin that we ascribe to Lot's wife. Right. But Lot is the one who hesitated. Lot's wife only looks back. So not to mention the fact that he just tried to chuck his daughters out the door um, to suffer horrible violence at the hands of a mob. Um, and somehow commentators just skim right over that part and jump straight <laughs> into trying to take out Lot's wife. Um Which is a great transition. So thank you. So one of the reasons we look at reception history is because um, we want to review biblical interpretation or the stories that we tell about scripture because we want to examine where we might be perpetuating injustice or championing justice with our stories. So we don't just reflect cultural norms about gender. We also shape them when we tell these stories. So how we speak about women and how we tell these extremely important God-breathed stories every week is intensely critical to the well-being of the people within the church. So we just want to be thinking critically and noticing, oh, where are we adding things to the text that aren't already there? And can we tell a bit of a different a different story, potentially. We'll see. So Lot's wife's name, uh, she gets named Edith uh, or Edith in Midrash Tanuma, which comes from like 400 to 600 CE or AD, depending on how you roll there. Um, I believe she was left without a name in the text in order to call emphasis to the culpability of Lot in this whole narrative. Um because I don't think that the Bible is inherently sexist or inherently doesn't place value on women. So I think that it's choice to label her as someone who Lot had responsibility for and accountability for is intentional. Um, So yeah, she walks around uh, after him. It says she turns around and she gazes at that city it's the same word um, that it says that Avraham uses when he looks up at the sky to see the stars when God is talking to him in Genesis 17. So whether that's longingly or it's more just like that she looks at it, not just glancing. She really looks at it. Um, and she's turned into a Nitziv Melach. Um, there is no other time in scripture that Nitziv is translated pillar. Every other time, and it's not really a rare word, it means garrison. Like, hey, uh, uh, lots of times in First and Second Samuel about the you know the army as the garrison. So that's that's a side thing. I'll let other people think about mm. what's what's going on there. But we're going to take a brief jaunt through history. We're going to look at Talmud and Jewish thinkers and early Christian early church thinkers about why, what is so wrong with turning around other than the angel telling her not to, or telling Lot not to let them do so. Um, That's bad. And do we see any things that we are layering in that isn't really there? Uh, Yes. Very likely. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good guess. Good, good prediction, Brent. Okay. So, I mean, it is an interpretive thing. Why, why did this happen to her? So we don't want to denigrate people for trying to figure it out. But if we layer in a bunch of sexism, that is more more problematic. Okay, so Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, 
gives us some background um, on the city of Sodom and why it might be that she was turned into salt. So that's the question that they're trying to answer. Why salt? Because she could have been, you know, flamed out in fire. She could have just been, you know, disappeared, died the way a normal person dies. So why a pillar of salt? That's an odd, an odd punishment. It wasn't just that she was skilled or something. So Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, Daf 108, if you care about such things, our rabbis taught the men of Sodom were corrupted only on account of the good which God had la- lavished upon them. And they said, since there comes forth bread out of our earth, and it has the dust of gold, why should we suffer wayfarers who come to us only to deplete our wealth? Come, let us abolish the practice of lodging travelers in our land, (laughs) which that doesn't preach for our era at all, right? That's totally foreign to us. Uh, Yeah, no, never heard anything like that. Absolutely not. Um, So it says a, a certain maiden gave some bread to a poor man. So she uh, did some hospitality there. She gave some bread to a poor man. This is a woman doing so, even worse, hiding it in a pitcher. When the matter became known, they, as in the residents of Sodom, daubed her with honey and placed her on the parapet of the wall, and the bees came and consumed her. Thus it is written, and God said the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah, because it is great. So that's dark. Um, but so the idea that the rabbis take in Bereshit Rabbah, so in the Midrash, is that um, she gets turned into salt because Lot said to his wife, give, give these guests a little salt, to which she replied, do you want to introduce here that evil practice too? So they're saying that she was bad at hospitality because she was afraid of getting eaten by bees, apparently. Um, So much so that when Lot is taking in travelers, she's angry about it and won't even give them salt. Um, So that's one interesting explanation. Um, And obviously that's not in the text. Um, It's a... It's a midrash, which is fine, but it carries this thing um, that we might recognize from, you know, uh, sitcoms of the last couple decades of a shrewish wife, right, who's super annoyed that her husband is having people over and she has to make something for dinner and she's annoyed about it and she doesn't want to do it. Another take on this story says that she actually brought the mob to the house because she on purpose went to go ask for salt from a neighbor, even though she had salt because she wanted them to know that her husband was breaking the rules. And that uh, so when she like told on them by asking for salt, then the mob knew that the travelers were there and came. Um, So again, that has more of the picture of nosy neighbor, gossipy wife. You can't trust those women. So what kind of things are being reinforced by that telling. Uh, Not, not good ideas. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say personally, maybe you're totally fine with that, Brent. Yeah. I'm a woman (laughs) interest in super gossipy shoes. What's your problem? I I mean, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I mean, that almost makes me think more of, you know, I mean, that's, that's just been the, the way that women are portrayed for a long time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's more um, Jewish stories, Jewish commentary on this that says it works with the word for my roof um, in that Lot says, 
um, don't do this thing to these men because they came under my roof for protection. So they say Lot's wife um, said, like, this is your portion of the house and this is my portion of the house and they can't be under my roof because I don't support you and what you do. And again, the the same kind of picture. But so that's the Jewish wrap up um, from, again, a very limited time period. Um, but, you know, around Jesus's time and after. That's not great. That's not, not, uh, we're reading a lot into the text there that I'm not, don't think is super great to repeat continually to our congregations, but maybe the Christians are better. Maybe they're. Um, so let's check. Have you heard of Origin Ben, uh, Brent? Wow. Not Ben, Brent. <laughs> the, uh, well, there's, there's a Ben who thinks that he looks a lot like me. So there you, know, you go. I'll, I'll, Somewhere I'll he's this very happy. Uh, origin the the person yes yes yeah we talked about him in session five i believe perfect he he was a first century yes second century time frame early church if you say early church no one can argue with you yeah that's true <laughs> i was just trying to think of which episode it might have been in, oh but yeah yeah yeah, super important. One of our first like biblical commentators who goes through the whole Bible and talks about things. So he says that um, she turned into a little statue of salt, which is a bizarre, you know, diminution of the story. Like she's a garrison and you're going to change her from, from that into a pillar and then into a little statue. Like a little salt shaker kind of thing. Yes. Yes. Um, a little statue of salt because she was terrified by the excessive crackling of the flames. Um, oh, really? Interesting. That's definitely not in there. She's just so scared. Okay. And then, so you're thinking, okay, well, maybe that's all right, but you know, whatever, give some space for early church. Which, yeah, I think Origin has great things. I'm not like saying cancel Origin, but just reading what he said. Next, he says, Lot, who did not look back, is not, uh, who did not look back, is the rational understanding and the manly soul. And his wife here represents the flesh. For it is the flesh who always looks to vices, which when the soul is proceeding to salvation, looks backward and sees after pleasures, seeks after pleasures. And I've heard that kind of interpretation as recently as 2015, Brent, not about this story, but the idea that women, you know, are emotional and that's why Eve failed and caused the fall because they're linked to the flesh and these ideas that they're just like not as morally strong. Uh, and that is, a, you know, completely wild interpretation of something uh which is just this small little story in Genesis that's gone out and impacted thousands and millions of Christian women for a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of time. Um, whoo. You want to <laughs> jump yeah. in there? Uh, well, I mean, I will just say that 2015 is a particularly interesting date for you to mention. Um, that may relate to a, a recent episode anyway. Um, so I like the, the image that I get, like, referencing the Lot's wife looked back and, and you saying that, I, I, I don't know if you said it was the first mention, but the, the picture that we get with Avraham looking at mm -hmm. the stars, mm -hmm. like God told him that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. Mm -hmm. And so like, like I would, I would just think like, Oh, he's just looking at the stars, like trying to imagine what that would even be like, because, you know, he hasn't even had a, 
the one kid and, and yet he's supposed to have right. this whole thing and just like trying to comprehend it all. Mm. And so I think like with that picture in mind, she's looking back at the city, like trying to comprehend the destruction. Yeah. Well, well, but, but not, not in like a longing sort of way right. necessarily. Right. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about a different picture in just a second. Um, because yeah, we're putting so much into the text that's not there. Like let's let the text be what it is, but not weave our own, our own ideas about women into the text and then call it biblical because the propagation of these perceptions that it's in women's nature to sin and they're without self-control or discretion compared to how the rational men, um, that abets the abuse of women, um, and violence against them and their exclusion and participation from religious circles and church leadership and all those things. Um, so that's why we were calling attention to it. But so on to a different way to think about the story. This is just one, just one idea. If you want to preach on um, Genesis 19 in a different way, power to you. I'm totally fine with that. But here's one potential idea behind her turning and looking. Um there is also a, there's a modern midrash written by um, a woman recently, which is like a poetic retelling of the story. You might put it in the show notes if you can find it. Brent, I don't remember the name of the author because I first heard about it like five years ago or so. But it's buried with it's still answering the question, why a nativ melach? Why salt? Um so buried within the name of salt, I've heard a bunch of sermons being like, Christians are supposed to be the salt of the earth because salt is a preservative and it makes things taste better. And that might totally be true. Maybe that is what we're going for. But salt as a picture in Torah is different. Um, do you know what salt's purpose is in Torah, Brent? I don't, but I was also thinking about how like we have conflicting images. Like honey, you normally think of like this good thing, but then in that in the story that you talked about earlier of the the woman covered in honey and then consumed Ooh, by yeah. the bees, like that's not a very <laughs> so so like there's there's uh there's alternating views on a lot of these things apparently. Right. Although that uh that isn't text, obviously that's tractate right. Yeah, Andrew, not text. Which right. is a totally a wild tractate, by the way. If anybody wants to dive into Talmud and get into like the world to come, it is chock full of adventures. And I totally <laughs> recommend it. Um with if you have a learning partner who can, you know, talk you through some things. But salt. So picture of salt in Torah, there's three different places it comes up in Torah. And the first place, which is also in um, the book of Exodus, it is telling you how to make the holy incense for the worship of God in the in the tabernacle. And it says to include salt in the incense because it is pure and holy, pure and and holy. And then it's included in two more of the kinds of sacrifices later um, in the text in Torah, um, describing that salt needs to go in it. Um, again, with that link, it is symbolizing this covenant that has to do with being pure and holy. And so one different interpretation that I'll throw out there. And if you don't like it, that is fine. But a different um, interpretation might be, if you zoom backward a little bit, Abraham is having this argument with God and God keeps 
um, lowering his number of the amount of people um, that he'll save the city for. Um, and Avraham does not take it all the way to, can you not just destroy the city, which I think is in session one um, about chutzpah, I think, talking about Avraham negotiating with God and why didn't he finish so one interpretation that I put out there would be that she, um, that it's linked to that story, that it's possible that if Avraham had kept negotiating with God and kept whittling God down and calling upon what God has stated his character is, that he's um, you know, steadfast love and mercy and slow to anger, um, that then the city would have been destroyed at all. So what if this woman is actually um, holy? What if she is actually uh, a good character? And as she is leaving, um, she's she has been told by the angels, don't look back. Um, and she does break that rule. So if that makes her not good anymore, okay, fine. But what if it has to do with her saying, I can't believe the city is going to be destroyed when, like in our story about Jonah, Yona, um, they had so much potential. They could have repented. This could have gone a different way. And as she turns to look at the city, she is turned into a pillar of salt because what she saw in it was potential for purity and potential for holiness. And so it was God marking her because salt is pure and holy and leaving her as a testimony of what that city could have been, not just the smoke going up, not just the rubble and ruins that were left over, but also this marker to say she saw, and that's why she turned and looked, she was mourning the death of all of these people. And she would have rather seen stayed and testified to the fact that they, it did have potential. And there was in the midst of all the darkness, something pure and holy in the center that she wasn't able to keep walking on and ignore and just go save herself. Um, and oh, right. And so good. <laughs> the salt too. last thing to throw in salt. Malach. Uh, the picture behind it is something that's being pulverized, um, which makes sense. You know, if you think about salt it's little crystals um so as she turns and her heart is broken for the people who are left behind she watches this heavenly weaponry destroy her cities she's transformed into something which also denotes pulverization along with holiness and purity and solidarity mm. with them <sighs> mm. a different perspective a different very perspective. different perspective a different telling uh and again it's just a telling um, if I get to heaven, you know, and talk to Lot's wife and she's like, oh no, that totally wasn't what was going on. I just was bummed out about missing my comfortable house. I'll be like, oh man, okay. <laughs> Alrighty then. <laughs> That's fine. But yeah, I just wanted to think about the way we tell our stories and what kind of messages we're communicating. Um, in the midst of all that complexity. Yeah. And considering how little we have in the text about it, like, are we going to assume things with a good eye or a bad eye? Mm. Okay, Jesus. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Does does Jesus talk about Lot's wife at all? No, he says good eye, bad eye. No, I don't know. I mean, I'm just I'm just thinking if he if he commented at, at any point, right, offhandedly, right. Um, yeah, that 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 would be the question to ask. Yeah, and if you do preach on it, please call attention to the fact that Lot is the one who sends out his daughters and then also, you know, starts uh, other shenanigans with them in the next chapter before you spend a whole hour harping on how she had unbelief or whatever. Like, 
And she isn't mentioned at any point after this, right? Uh, as far as I'm aware, I don't know. She becomes the pillar so. of salt and then it's it's like she doesn't even exist. There's no mention at all. Um, well, it depends what you think because lots of people say that Sodom and Amorah were in the place where the Dead Sea is now and that the Dead Sea is the leftover rubble of them. All of that salt is from... Um, them being pulverized and some people mm. say that there is a um, stone thing that looks like her of course it doesn't make sense because it's not made out of salt but whatever so <laughs> you can say whenever it talks about the dead sea in the text it could be hearkening back to this story but mm. that's okay. an interpretation yeah yeah interesting yeah okay well i i think we've given people a lot to think about i definitely have a lot to think about so Anything else you want to share before we close it down? I don't think so. Um, you can find um, my email uh, as well on my website if you really just want to be like, that's the worst thing I ever heard. You know, that's where <laughs> that's where I am. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to have you in Hebrew class. Love to meet you guys. Um, yeah, and check out Text in Us if it sounds like something which might benefit you in some way, helping to get the text in you. Forgot to drop that part. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing to me how many people ask about learning Hebrew. And I don't know if like people have always been asking and I just like it hasn't clicked, but it seems like, you know, you've started your classes at just the right time when everyone is suddenly very interested in learning Hebrew. We have yep. We have something to point people to, which is great. So. Yes. And you get to do it in community with other Baymont people. So it's not like trying to do Duolingo, which is modern Hebrew, by the way, non-biblical Hebrew on your own, mm -hmm. you know, trying to keep yourself accountable. Come join us. We have lots of fun, lots of laughter. It's good. Be in the text. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we need. That's what we need more of that. So uh, that'll do it for this episode. If you want to find more details about the show, go to baymontestablishup.com. We'll have links in the show notes for everything that Elle talked about, her website, her upcoming podcast, as soon as that link is available and everything else. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. I don't have anything like wildly profound to say now that the recording's done. Sorry to disappoint.